Please, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're turning there, just a bit of a reminder, uh, this, as you know, is Paul's second letter to young Timothy, a man in whose life Paul had poured his own life, endeavoring to ensure that he was equipped for ministry. Talk just for a minute about the matter of authority. The authority of the elder is intrinsically in the person of God as disseminated in the Word of God. That's our authority. We don't have the authority to tell you to do anything that the Bible doesn't tell you to do. We do not bear that authority. So the Scripture is the singular source of authority, and this is why earlier I put so much emphasis on the matter of hermeneutics, the workshop that we're having coming up. You need to know how I approach the Word of God, and I think most of you do, but you need to know better how that works so that you can be good Bereans, that you can go home and determine whether or not what you're being told is so because you have an honest and effective process by which you read and meditate upon and memorize and particularly study the Bible. The faithful Bible student will always be moved by faithful Bible teaching. Always, always. And he's going to be challenged to go home and use faithful methods to determine whether or not what he's being told is so. And some, and sadly, some will take that to this odd and autonomous extreme by thinking that they, in particular, you know, he, if I could say it that way, in particular, that one man, thinks of himself as the standard of all truth. So that he goes home by himself and determines whether or not everything he hears, whether it's on the internet or from the pulpit, is so. That's nothing more than self-idolatry. But the idea is that in the context of a local church, a group of people are together submitting themselves to God by faithful pursuit of His Word. What moves the church of God to faithful exaltation of God is faithful exegesis that leads to faithful exposition. Faithful study that leads to faithful preaching. Preaching is the primary vehicle of the church. I have no hesitations about preaching what I believe to be true. And I believe that to be true about the men with whom I lead this church. There's a vast devotion to the essence, the heart of the Word of God, if you will. So I read to you last week some of the results of a survey done by Legionnaire Ministries, and I won't go back through all of those, but I wanted to mention uh, some of the, these results. But I wanted to start first by saying this was the description of the people. One of the questions in the survey kind of gives you an idea of the people being surveyed, what they believe. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Well, 62% agreed with that statement. So these are the people being surveyed. So at least 62% at least have some idea that salvation is God's. It's God's work. But regarding this statement, 53% agreed. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Heartbreaking. 36% of people in the survey, and this is where you say, why does all this matter? The issue of the sufficiency of Scripture, inerrancy, veracity, infallibility. Why does all this matter? Here's why. 36% agree with this statement in the survey. 36% agreed with this statement. God is unconcerned with my day-to-day living, with my day-to-day decisions. That breaks my heart because that communicates a false God, an unloving, uncaring God. So when you think of what a God-made theology is, there are those who will take it 
and twist it to make it reflect an unkind, uncaring God who does not care about the details of your life. A biblical soteriology is one that exposes repeatedly and frequently the grace of God that leads to the statement that you must cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. If you want to understand what God thinks about you and what he cares about, remember from 1 Peter 5 that that's a command in Scripture. And that is essential Reformed theology. Second Timothy chapter 3. I'd like you to stand as uh, we read this together. And I want to start with verse 10. Second Timothy 3, verse 10. We'll read down through the end of the chapter. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Our Father, we look now to your word to know precisely what it says about itself. We long to be a people, a local church whose lives, really whose collective gathering is reflective that what you have given us in your word is breathed out by you. It's not uh, you having approved the word of men, but it is you using men by the movement of the Holy Spirit to pen what you have deemed in eternity past to be truth. And so we think of our Savior's words who spoke of this truth when he said to you in his high priestly prayer in John 17, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, in completion of what we began last week, we'll examine Paul's words to young Pastor Timothy that the very breathed Word of God is, in fact, sufficient to adequately prepare the pastor for every work of ministry so that we will obey Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. In verse 18 of Matthew 28, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's so much theology there. There's the presence of Christ in the life of those who are faithful to Christ. There is the command to be involved in missions. This is why we've said God left us here, that we would go to places like Antananarivo, Madagascar, Lilongwe, Malawi, Czech Republic, Croatia, Uganda. You know, as you think through your schedule, your, you know, maybe you sit down with your spouse, or if you're single, you kind of think through that on your own. Maybe you seek counsel from others. Good. Missions ought to permeate everything you think about in your schedule. That ever cross your mind? Really? Everything? Yeah. Everything you do ought to be productive toward a more faithful life of overseas missions. Everything every little detail. And as I've observed 
us as a local church over the years, there has been a growing passion that simultaneously partners with increasing maturity, being faithful in every area. So when Jesus here says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine, and I call you to obey my every word. If the Anchor Bible Church were dependent upon your example, what would Christ think of us? Now, don't get too discouraged if you're discouraged, because that can change today if it's not what you would have hoped it would have been. It's also important to realize that God's glory does not depend upon your performance. But our effectiveness as a local body does depend upon your willingness to humble yourself and to be faithful. Remember, faithfulness levels the playing field. How are you being faithful? And would the people around you say, look, his life's been hard the last year or two or 35, but he's faithful. That's the issue. Is he endeavoring to obey every word of the Lord? And this text is really a clarion call. It's a loud and clear call to understand what that looks like, particularly in the life of a shepherd. God's word is exactly enough for equipping the pastor for every work of ministry. And we know that because Paul says here that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. Just as your breath is expressive of your heart, right? What comes out of your heart, through your mind, crosses over your vocal cords by way of physical breath, out your lips, reverberates into the ears and the hearts and the minds of those who listen. That's how you get to know God. And the degree to which you subject yourself to that is the degree to which you are displaying faithfulness. So what we have said here is that the Bible is exactly enough for that. As I said, we're examining Paul's words here to young Timothy. His words that the very breathed word of God is sufficient. It's sufficient to make the man of God adequately equipped for every work of ministry. The man of God is to be completed in his man of godness. For his equipping, for every good work, as a man of God, as a minister, as a shepherd, and specifically these good works of ministry, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, we have the God-breathed word, and it is exactly enough. Let's look at them. Number one, your Bible is exactly enough for teaching truth. The man who aspires to be an overseer must be able to teach or apt to teach, Paul tells Timothy. Among God's clearly stated requirements, he must be an effective teacher. It doesn't mean that he needs to have the ability or even the, the willingness to stand in front of the whole flock and proclaim the truth the way I do week after week. It simply means that he has a proclivity for and an expressed effectiveness in communicating God's word. If he has no interest in that, he is not an elder. He's not qualified. The desire has to be there. In the requirements in 1 Timothy 3, an overseer must be able to teach. A pastor teaches, and he does it with ability. He's able. He's effective. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13 Paul says to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of the elders laid hands on you. Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul is saying there to Timothy, give careful attention to your life, but also to your doctrine. You don't want to be guilty of teaching heresy, something that would move someone off into a false gospel. That's really the essential message of Paul to the Galatians, that though they primarily are believers Many of them have been bewitched. They've been tricked by a false gospel. And so this call here to Timothy is don't be that guy. Don't be the pastor who gets on some tangent and ultimately derails people with a focus on a works gospel, on legalism. Very, very careful that the man in leadership is willing to examine his own heart, his own life, his own practices, his own leadership, and ask the question, have I moved off into some expression of legalism somewhere? He must be committed to sound doctrine. And the result would be that God would save people through him. He's a teacher. Let me read to you the initial exhortations from Paul in 2 Timothy 2. Now remember, the second letter, this is the chapter prior to the one we're looking at this morning, but it's the second letter from Paul to Timothy, and it's where Paul is really kind of just giving him his last effort to nurture effective pastoral ministry in Timothy. And so he says here, this is so important, this is a huge part of this, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Look down with me at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What is the call of the pastor in the pastor's life, the other pastor's lives? It is not simply my role to lead you. Part of my role is to lead those who lead you as I've had the opportunity to go back and teach in Grace Advance, you know, the, the obvious question is, you know, what has the process been that has led to the significant spiritual health of your church? It has been willingness to invest in men along with their willingness to be invested in, along with their willingness to invest in others. And so over time, we've seen God show his grace. That's the impetus behind Paul's charge here that it would be by the grace of God that you would have the ability to lead other men in these faithful things. The guy who doesn't want discipleship, he doesn't want to be around men, he doesn't want to be challenged, he just wants to kind of skate through, doing his own thing, whatever that thing is, he ought not to be leading the flock. And it, it doesn't come down just to that. It's not that he just ought not to be leading the flock. The reality is that his life is off the rails. He's not willing to have that accountability and that desire to be trained. We have faithful men. We have faithful men in our leadership. But let me ask you, where are the men who are going to be trained by those men? Our church is growing. We need more men to lead the flock. I mean, you need to step up. You know, some of you need to hear a reproof. In some cases, your life has had extenuating circumstances. You've been remarkably busy. And, but that's a, that's a short chapter, right? Maybe it seems eternal. But in many cases, many men are going to have that chapter in their lives. But maybe the reproof for you is to hear that Too many men, or maybe I should say not enough men, are bearing so much weight of leadership in the church. Some of you need to step up. You know that your family group shepherd is overburdened. Some of you share a family group shepherd with another family group. Let me just tell you, he's overburdened. So we need men to step up. 
Don't just shove anybody into leadership. You need to show yourself faithful over time. But for, for some of you, maybe you need to carve some of the things out of your life so you have time to really sit under that training and grow to be ready. So this is our first point under this idea that Paul has called Timothy to acknowledge that it is his word, God's word, by which the man of God is exclusively and adequately equipped. The Bible is enough. It's exactly enough for teaching truth. Well, second, and this is kind of the the other side of this coin, your Bible is exactly enough for exposing error. And I've talked about that some under the first point. These things go hand in hand. D. Edmund Hebert is so very helpful with this by saying that reproof is detecting and exposing all that is false. This isn't just about what you say you believe. It's not just about your personal doctrinal statement. It's how your life is expressive of it or not. The man of God is adequately equipped by all Scripture, which is all God-breathed, for the sake of exposing error, whether it's doctrinal heresy or just doctrinal wrongness, or waywardness in a person's life. A lack of willingness to be faithful. And brothers, sisters, be frightened if this is not the passion of your life to long for that reproof. It's one thing if you kind of bristle when you are reproved, but the truth is I think the saddest condition a person can be in is that he's not going to others saying, hey, can you help me examine my life? Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. A buddy of mine years ago, this is many years ago, he said, Todd, I just, I just don't understand why MacArthur can't just stop being so polemic. It's like it's always this problem in the church or that problem or there's another problem. He's like always exposing something. I don't understand it. Enough said. That's what a pastor does. He exposes heresy. And he not only exposes it on the global level that the Lord has used MacArthur to do it with, few of us will ever have that opportunity. Praise God for John, his willingness to be that person, and others, not just John MacArthur. There are many others that are faithful in doing that. But really, primarily, this is for the man within his local church. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, when you discover someone is in error, whether it is false doctrine or sinful living, what do you say to them? Do you complain? Or do you go to them? See, that's what a shepherd does. And part of a shepherd doing that is to show you the model by which you should be doing the same thing. Proverbs 27, 5 to 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Paul in Acts 20 really deals with how this so affects the church as he's leaving Ephesus to board the ship. There's tears between him and the other elders. And he tells them, wolves will creep in. And a wolf doesn't show up in wolf's clothing. Well, he does, but it's covered with sheep's clothing. And so a shepherd's role has to be willing to uncover the wolf. Titus 1.10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. 
There's so much more there, but you know the idea here is that you're um, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to be aware of the fact that factions will come into the church. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that the purpose of factions is so that those are approved will be shown to be approved. Those who are factious, those who are doctrinally divisive, are the backdrop against which those who are committed to sound doctrine are actually approved. So part of a shepherd's role by use of the Word of God is to expose that happening, whether it's in a potential wolf or just a person in the church who might nurture that mindset, and then a wolf comes in, think of it, a wolf comes in and finds that person who, who's a grumbler. He latches onto that person. Now he's got a follower, and the faction's off and running. So a shepherd's got to deal not only with the potential wolf, he's got to deal with those who need to be reproved. How does he do that? He takes them to the Word. The Word's sufficient. It's perfectly sufficient for that. Well, third, your Bible is exactly enough for commanding correction. Teaching truth, exposing error, commanding correction. Go with me to 2 Timothy 2. Now, our passage here tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for correction. In 2 Timothy 2, there's a call to patience. Verse 24 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Now, before you start thinking, the pastor needs to be patient with people in the church. Pay close attention to what he says here. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. His opponents. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the shepherd must be willing to boldly but gently declare the heresy of the unbeliever. Now, many times that's going to take place in the context of the church where a person whose activity over some significant period of time might lead the non-discerning to think, oh, of course he's a Christian. He's here every other week. Of course he's a believer. That guy used to do all kinds of stuff in the church. There's no reason to think that a person who acts like he's not a believer ever was. A lot of people fake it. The hope is that they would come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Correction. Your Bible, friends, believer, brother, sister, your Bible is exactly enough for that kind of correction. I just don't know what to say to my sister-in-law, you know? I mean, well, say something. Start with the Bible. Start with something in Scripture that exposes this reality that there are false converts. That will be the case forever till the Lord returns. There will be false converts. The greater issue, though, is in the context of your local church. How are we, a la 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, showing our love for one another in a non-legalistic way that believers would look on in our willingness to eat something that we might not otherwise be interested in eating? to participate in something that we might not otherwise be willing to participate in because it's not really our flavor. Paul says, eat it. But if a believer looks on and says, wait a minute, wasn't that sacrifice to idols? Don't eat it. For the sake of the unbeliever seeing that our greater devotion is to the believer, for some of you, Matthew 10 is going off like a loud bell right now. 
is where the Lord calls us to recognize the fact that he did not come to bring peace. He came to breed a sword, and that sword divides families, mother from daughter, mother-in-law from daughter-in-law, father from son, so that your devotion to the body of Christ far outshines your devotion to your family for the sake of your family. Well, that doesn't feel right. It will. It will. As you grow in faithfulness, grow in Christ, recognizing that your devotion to the body is that which the Lord uses to show your family what it means to be devoted to Christ. But there needs to be correction there. Speaking of correction, Matthew 18, Galatians 6, I think of really the the bookends of the mindset with regard to correction. In Matthew 18, the idea is, uh, the command is that you go in private. That person rejects your concern. You, you go back with someone else. You know, maybe they just ignore you. Or maybe they boldly reject it. You, you have to go back with somebody else if you have a concern. The command of Christ. And eventually, if that rejection persists, you tell the church. The hope would be that they would be restored. Paul's a little more pastoral in Galatians 6 than in other places where he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Many times what starts in a spirit of gentleness results in something that doesn't feel like gentleness because the person refused to hear it even in gentleness. But it needs to start with gentleness. Keep, uh, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You don't fulfill the law of Christ. You can't. You can obey the law of Christ, but you can't fulfill it. But it having been fulfilled by Christ results in your willingness to love others in a willingness to bring correction. And the pastor who is unwilling to bring correction, I mean, of course, Joel Osteen is the first person that comes to mind. There's no correction there. It's just, you know, feel good about you because you're great. (laughs) Isn't it poisonous? Because everybody thinks they're great especially when they're told that repeatedly. I knew I was great. I just needed somebody to tell me. What we need is correction. It needs to be gentle. Friends, let me just plead with you. If someone brings correction to your door, make dinner for them. Don't make it difficult for the person, whether he's fumbling and bumbling or doing it with the sweetest smoothness on the planet, When he comes to you with an effort to correct you, know that he's showing his love for you, especially if it's someone in leadership in your life. Do you think that the men in our leadership do what they're doing because they're getting some sort of earthly reward out of it? If you do, um, I refer you to them. (laughs) Just ask one of them. There's the joy. That's an earthly thing. It's more heavenly than it is earthly. But you see it happening on the earth. There's the joy of spiritual growth. John says, make my joy complete. And that completion of that joy is spiritual growth. And John communicates that to little children as you're growing spiritually and you're becoming young men. That's what completes my joy. When a shepherd comes to you, he might... He might bobble the whole thing. He might handle it poorly. But he might be intimidated. He might be nervous. He might fear man in the moment. But despite all that, he loves you enough to correct you. Well, the fourth element of this passage, the fourth thing to which Paul calls the man of God is this idea that your Bible is exactly enough for developing disciples. Teaching truth, exposing error, commanding correction, and developing disciples. 
You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the spirit that Paul is referring to here in 2 Timothy 3, verse 17, where he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for training in righteousness. Think of it. My role standing here Sunday after Sunday is not simply to train all of you in righteousness. It is to call other men, to teach other men, to share with faithful men and trust it to them, that which is going to result in their training in righteousness, that they would be equipped for training you in righteousness. Isn't this simple? There's there's nothing confusing about this. There's nothing unclear about it. But it's so easy for the church to lose sight of this and to think that our role is to have some, you know, create a carnival. Recently, someone shared with me that some very large church had resorted to having motorcycles jump on the stage. And I, man, I remember years ago, the guy that I was in ministry with many years ago who set out to have a Rick Warren kind of church, you know, seeker-friendly church. The Bible says there are no seekers. You'd think that church would be empty, but it's not because they're seeking after something, and they were doing the exact same thing. Um, dirt bikes on the stage. It's very cool. And, and so... Um, This last week I was looking at a Christian comedian's website and he said, uh, we have chosen to use entertainment. Uh, The one thing that unbelievers want the most, entertainment, to draw them in. Well, they already have a love for that. We need to use the gospel. And if God saves someone using the gospel... That's what sets them apart from those who just want to be entertained. You don't bring people in with that which gratifies the flesh, expecting that somehow that's going to change. That salves the conscience. Teach them truth. Train them in righteousness because truth is adequate to train the shepherd to do that. And then 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. That's that's the, if I can call it this, that's the capstone of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. How are you going to become the person who best displays a non-legalistic call to be sensitive to the weaker believer while not being manipulated by the manipulative believer? Follow a guy like Paul. That's what he's saying. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of life and imitate their faith. Further in verse 13 is where that pastor calls spiritual leaders to remember that they will be accountable for the souls of the people. That frightens me. It should frighten those of you who shepherd family groups, who shepherd our church. It should frighten all of you. And for those of you who are unwilling to subject yourself officially to the leadership of a local church, You should wonder why. Why do you not want that kind of soul-loving leadership in your life? What is it? It's causing you to say, I don't don't want that kind of protection. I'm not interested in that. That is the pervasive reality of the New Testament church. Now, don't feel guilty if you're checking our church out and you're still figuring this all out. Don't feel guilty. You should be commended because you're taking time. Some people have taken as much as a year. To f- is this really where I'm going to serve? Well, and I'm, 
You know, I'm not interested in figuring out why it took a year or three months or whatever. I'm not concerned about that. The concern is that you realize that you are to be trained in righteousness by those who are being trained in righteousness. And how in the world, how could those who are doing that possibly know that you're interested in that if you're standing at arm's distance saying, membership, where's that in the Bible? And it's everywhere in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, great starting places. When you see the word member, that's a clue. That's membership. It's, it's not that hard. But the sad reality is that there are denominations, you know, sects of religious people who say, we don't do membership because that's not in the Bible. And let me just ask you, what kind of spiritual good is going on in those churches, really? Really? Or there's no real shepherding? Jesus set himself apart, and he sets us apart for training in righteousness. In a few weeks, I'll, have, uh, I'll take the opportunity to show you a video of my recent trip to Madagascar. And you need to know what's going on in these Master's Academy International schools. You're pretty aware of what's happening in, in uh, Malawi with the Central African Preaching Academy. You know, you've seen videos, Jim... Uh, Ayers has been here, Dave Temple has been here, Matt Kopp has been here, Tony McCracken has been here. Those men have been here to preach. You've, you know, I've Skyped in when I'm there, Dominic with me, Dave one time. And uh, so you're, you're aware of what's going on there in a, in a tremendous sense, I think. You need to know more. You need to be aware of what's happening. The family group that has uh, adopted Tony McCracken and Dave Temple and those guys, you know, they, they are aware because they're talking about that when they meet. Um. My group has adopted Lance Roberts in Czech Republic. Uh, I've, I've been now to Madagascar. This is our effort to be faithful to Christ in the Great Commission with these TMAI schools. What are they doing? They're training men in righteousness. They're training nationals in the reality. This is why I had the privilege to teach from this passage at the conference in Madagascar training nationals to be men who are, in fact, adequately equipped exclusively in the Word of God. I mean, some of these dear folks in that conference, their heads were spinning because they'd never heard this before. Maybe they'd read it, but they weren't, it hadn't had the privilege to, be, to sit under preaching that exposed the first and second Timothy approach to the Scripture. 3M, Madagascar, I'm going to make a stab here at the Malagasy terms that 3M represents pirutireni, that's the first term, means preacher, pitajina is shepherd, and panumpu is slave or servant. So 3M, when you see 3M Madagascar, and you should go to their Facebook page if you have a Facebook account and like their page so you, you get reports of what's going on there. Know that Fowley's vision for this, if you will, and I'm not talking about a vision the Lord gave him, but one that he has in terms of what would happen in Madagascar re regarding men being trained in righteousness, is that he would be a preacher, shepherd, and slave. That's what 3M stands for, preacher, shepherd, and slave. How does this work? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's the words of our Savior. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. It's that training, every good work, preaching, teaching, repentance, obedience, sanctification, wisdom, worship, counseling, comforting, correction, Rebuke, evangelism. A number of years ago, a gal who has since gone to be with the Lord had come to me for counseling a number of times. This is eight, ten years ago, before we planted the anchor. And she was very discouraged because her husband had left her for the eighth or tenth time. And she wanted to be persuaded that he was a Christian. 
And so I asked her a series of questions. I said, well, does he love the Lord? She said, well, no. no. Does he love the Word? No. Does he love the church? No. Does he love righteousness? No. Does he love you? And she bowed her head. She said, no, of course not. I told her, you know, John says by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This guy loved theological books. I mean, he loved them. And if I told you the authors that he read on a regular basis, you would say, how is that possible? Well, it's not that tricky. The fact is, some people love what theology can do in their efforts to lambaste others. You know? Never want to receive it themselves, but they want to have it to be able to beat other people over the head with it. So I said to her, what does he love? What, what does your husband love? What are his devotions? What is he committed to? She said he loves himself. Oh, and his hobbies. I took her to 2 Timothy 3. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, on and on and on. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. See, that's the unbeliever who has some sort of interest in theology. So I asked her, you know, they'd gotten to know each other in a singles ministry. And I asked her, did anyone in the church, a pastor, a spiritual leader, a discipler, ask you any of the questions that I just asked you before you married him? She said, no, no, no. Um, the pastor just married us because I told him that God told me to marry him. And the pastor said, oh, well, we can't argue with God. Two years after I had this counseling session with her, wherein I was attempting to persuade her to recognize that her husband was clearly not a Christian, with which she argued with me, by saying, why would God have me marry him if he's not a Christian? Why would God tell me to marry him if he's not a Christian? And I said, well, exactly. I'm pretty confident God did not tell you that. See, a person who's not devoted to the reality that all Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequately equipped, he or she is committed to the idea that God's still speaking. They want more than the adequate Scripture. And so they're going to say, well, God told me, you know, thus saith the Lord. And she was so fixed on that that she couldn't possibly let go of it. And two years after that counseling session, her husband drove his car into their church parking lot, put a gun to his chest, and killed himself. Now, no pastor can completely protect the flock from bad decisions, but he must try. He must be willing to teach truth. He must be willing to expose error. He must be willing to command correction, and he must be willing to develop disciples. Men, those of you who are shepherds in our church, shepherd the flock of God among you. And do it by being adequately trained in God's word for every good work, for teaching, for reproving, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Because the people of God need you 
to be trained. Your people, God's people, need you to believe that the Bible is sufficient, that it is exactly enough for you to be equipped for ministry, to equip them for ministry. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Christian, do not settle for anything less ever. Do not be the person who settles for the itching of your ears. Demand that those who shepherd the flock of God in which you are a member will in fact rest exclusively in the God-breathed word for being equipped for every work of ministry. Father, we rest in your word. We thank you for the perfection of your word and we plead with you even now as we consider what it is to sing your word back to you that you would help us drink deeply and voraciously that we ourselves would be known by our love one for another, resting in your truth, that we might reach the lost. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.